Let's go ahead and get started, everyone. Uh, many of you probably already have your handout, but if you haven't gotten that yet, please go ahead and take one out of the back, uh, the little box there, you see. And we'll get started on our class. We're resuming our series on the Holy Spirit. I'll open us in prayer, and then we'll get going. Our God, Father, Son, and Spirit, we thank you for making us your people, the church redeemed in Christ. We thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit, uh, for not only uh, understanding what Christ has done for us, but for even bringing the experience of heaven to us in a foretaste uh, of enjoying your fellowship. Uh, we need your spirit in so many ways to understand you, to um, have hearts that are ready to receive your word, uh, not just on an intellectual basis, but in our affections, in our will, um, and even just to tune our hearts to praise you, to respond in love and worship and obedience. So we pray that that would be the case in our learning today, that in this opportunity to study the Holy Spirit and the Trinity, we would have humility, we would have clarity of thought, submissiveness to your word, and uh, that we would grow in our knowledge of these things to love you with our minds uh, so that we could also love you fully with all of our lives. Uh, please give me clarity and help in communicating these things. Give us all alertness in hearing. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we move into really the content, the body of our series on the Holy Spirit, today we're going to take up the basic who question. Who is he? Who is the Holy Spirit? And in order to answer, we have to consider the Trinity, the triune God, and how the Holy Spirit fits in with the Trinity. So to start us off, I want us to think about something that came up in the 4th century. There was a lot of talk in the 4th century about the Holy Spirit's uh, deity. And there was a, a church fa father named Basil the Great in modern-day Turkey. And he was wrestling with a thorny problem. He was writing a liturgy for a worship service to be used in church uh, which is called the Gloria Patri, which means glory to the Father. And he used this, these, these words, glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. Now, this language caused some controversy in his day because um, people were comfortable with giving glory to the Father. So if you look at the wording of Ephesians 2.18, looking at the prepositions, the to, through, in, to the Father, through the Son, in the Holy Spirit. That's the kind of language people were used to and comfortable with, and it comes from Ephesians 2.18. But the problem with just leaving it there was that there were people who were denying the full deity of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and saying that the Son was less than God in his nature, and the Holy Spirit is less than God the Father in his nature, so they were okay with glory to the Father through the Son in the Holy Spirit. Because, strictly speaking, you could only be giving glory to God the Father. They weren't okay with Basel's liturgy that says glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. What is that implying? How is that different? Even the little wording is different. They're all equal. There's a paralleling of the three in terms of receiving glory. Um, so the question is, can we say both? I, I, I hope it's clear. We can and ought to speak in terms paralleling Ephesians 2.18. And I think there the terminology is having to do with our, with our uh, prayer. 
I'll just turn there real quick. Ephesians 2.18 says, For through him, that's Christ, we both, that's Jew and Gentile, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So you notice, we have access, and that's implying worship, all, all that's implied there. Access to the Father, through him the Son, in the Holy Spirit. So we can worship God that way. No question. Is it also biblical to accept Basel's wording and to say, to give glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit? What we're going to see today, among other things, is the answer is yes. It is no less biblical to worship the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And uh, we'll, we'll start, uh, returning again, I introduced last week this creed from 381, the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed, super mouthful. You've heard the Nicene Creed, that was kind of the version 1.0 a couple generations earlier. Basel was one of the theologians who influenced the, really the creed from the 325 version to the 381 version, tightened up some things, including the deity of the Holy Spirit. Basel was one of the theologians who influenced that tightening up on the deity of the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to read the language that this creed says about the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father, and we'll say, and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is adored and glorified. You catch that? Who with the Father and the Son is adored and glorified. Who has spoken through the prophets? So even in this little bit of creedal language, where do we hear claims of the Spirit's oneness, his equality with the Father and the Son? The Lord? Yeah, he's called the Lord, just straight up. That is a claim of deity, as we'll see. Yes, yeah, so uh, adoration and glory received, and this is paralleling the and, and, right? With the Father, with the Son, in a parallel manner. What about diversity among the persons? Where do we see that in this language? Yes, so exactly, good. He proceeds from the Father and the Son, so... Um, that procession, we're going to see that's really the key issue on the difference between the persons, uh, between the Spirit and, and the other two divine persons, the Father and the Son. So that's kind of, in some ways, an outline of what we're going to look at today. We'll, we'll look at the Holy Spirit's lordship, his existence as a divine person, and then we'll look at how that relates to not only um, the Trinity in essence, the, the who God is, but also the, the works of God. What does that mean with regard to the Spirit's participation in God's works? Uh, and, and that has to do with both, yeah, his oneness, his lordship, his equality with the Father and the Son, and then also the difference. What is distinct about the Holy Spirit? And then we'll look at some points of application. So does that make sense? We're going to first, the Holy Spirit is a divine person, then the Holy Spirit among the, with the divine works, and then kind of, what does that mean for us? Yeah, yeah, Paul. Uh, Tim, I've never seen where, I, where it refers to the Holy Spirit as the Lord. Is there any word in Scripture where it has that... You are wonderfully anticipating one of our points. Yes, yes. So that's a good point. Maybe, yeah, a lot of us, it could sound jarring that the Holy Spirit is straight up called the Lord. And uh, there, it's not a frequent thing, but it does show up in Scripture. These uh, divine titles are given directly to the Spirit in, in certain cases. So let's, um, let's first talk about the deity of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a divine person. So first of all, his deity, the fact that he is God. 
The Bible points this out in multiple ways. Um, the first we'll look at is what we could call triadic statements, or basically three-person statements. Um, he's listed along with the Father and the Son in these three-person statements that strongly imply a, div- a shared divine nature, because they're not just any statements. I mean, you could list three people and not be saying anything about their equality. Uh, but the, the contexts uh, are such that you have to say, wow, how could you say this about people who aren't equal in nature? For instance, um, one, one big one is Matthew 28, 19. Can I have someone be ready with Matthew 28, 19? Someone else with 2 Corinthians 13, 14. So Josh DeYoung, Matthew 28, 19. Who'd be ready? And Tom, 2 Corinthians 13, 14. Go for it, Josh. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So this is Jesus commissioning his disciples for their mission, the church's mission. And he says, baptize them, the new disciples, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, tell me, what is the function of that three-person saying? Like, what is that saying doing? Does that make sense, that question? How is it being used? How are, how are the three names... Father, Son, and Spirit being used there. Authoritatively, authoritatively yeah. In what sense? Let's draw that a little more. You're right. How, how is it authoritative? We're going in, in the power that they, they have in honor. Yeah, so it's in Christ's commission is to go in that and, and, and baptize in that name. Yeah, there's authority there for sure. What about, I mean, how, like, what is he telling them to do with that name, that, that three, threefold name we could say? To baptize, right. So uh, baptism is this symbol, the sign of our coming into union with Christ and the triune God. It is, a, it is an act of worship. Yeah, we may not think about it this way as the ordinances, the sacraments. They're absolutely, they're, they're ways of worshiping the Lord as he's given us to do. So he's saying, do this sign of worship and initiation into union with God. And, and he does it in this parallel way with these three. The name, by the way, singular name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It would be very hard to imagine that one of those persons or two of those persons is any less than the other. Similar with 2 Corinthians 13, 14. Tom, would you? This is the very last verse. This is the benediction of 2 Corinthians. Paul, you got that? Oh, I'm sorry, Paul. Tom. Yeah. yeah. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Okay, so again, what, is, what are those words doing? What is Paul doing with those words? He's pronouncing, right? Which is, yeah, any, any other thoughts on that? That's true, he's pronouncing. He's placing a blessing. Yeah, that's what, kind of what a benediction is. There's something of a prayer in it, right? He is, he is wishing something from God, pronouncing, wishing something from God. There's a, kind of an implied prayer that these three persons would be experienced by the, the Corinthians. Um, Again, this is something that, this is worship, to, to pronounce the blessing in the name of these three persons in a way that's, that's um, prayerful, is worship. So what's astounding about these statements is they're, they're not just randomly placed. They're, in, they're used in ways that you would think that all these persons are doing divine things. This is, this is um, worship-type contexts. And um, it's astounding how, on the one hand, they're so profound if you think about the implications of putting all these three names together. But it's also, it's, they're so easy to miss because they're so, they're just kind of littered throughout Scripture. And, and it's so easy to just read and go like, oh, okay, and not go, wait, hold up. You know, like there, there's, and there's a lot of them. I have 
I have several, not even all of them by any means, listed in your handout you can go look at. But they reveal so much about God and his work, but they're just easy to gloss over and not think about. What are the implications of using these three names in this way? Um, we could spend a long time on these triads, but I think they're a, a really helpful initial data point of, about how we think about the three persons. Yeah, Paul? Uh, Pastor Tim, is there, is, is there a, and I'm not sure the answer, is there a reason why they use grace with Lord Jesus Christ and they have love with God mm-hmm. and fellowship with Holy Spirit? Yes, there is, and you're anticipating another thing we're going to talk about later. What, what the question is, why is, why is love centered on the Father and grace centered on the Son and fellowship centered on the Holy Spirit? And the, the short answer is, it's not that the Father is more loving than the Son of the Spirit. Love is divine attribute shared equally. But in the works of God, there are certain ways that the, diff, the three persons, sort of certain, certain acts or certain roles in what God is doing, sort of uh, come to the fore with each person. And Paul is, there's actually a lot of rich theology to think through in how is redemption a reflection of love kind of most centered or kind of most prominently in the Father's action, grace most prominently in the Son's action, and and fellowship or communion most fully in the Spirit's action. As we'll see, in our thinking about what God is doing, we always have to kind of switch back and forth between the one and the three. And so again, we would never want to say only the Father loves and only the Son is gracious, but there's something about the, the particular manner of their their part in the divine works that, that does feature those things. Yeah? Jesus told his uh, disciples that unless he goes away, he can't send a comforter. Yeah. So there's a division, so to speak, of work. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, that's another one. Indwelling is another one, too, where the spirit, yeah, we're going to look at the spirit as the indweller in particular as well. That's a good point. So, um, the, another way we see the Spirit's uh, deity is that he's called God in some places. Like in Acts 5, 3, and 4, you see two parallel statements where in one time Peter says God, and the other time he says the Holy Spirit. Uh, you can look at that on your own. He's called Lord or Yahweh in certain places. So this is where um, the question of, is, is the Holy Spirit called the Lord? Is that a biblical language that we see in the Creed? Actually, it comes directly out of the Bible. It comes out of 2 Corinthians 3, um, where... In verses 17 and 18, Paul is talking about the Lord Yahweh of the Exodus, the one who appeared to Moses. So we know who he's talking about because of the Old Testament context. And right there in the middle, he's comparing the Old Covenant and the New Covenant and how much better the New is. And he says, he's talking about the Lord, the Lord. And then suddenly he says in verse 17, now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is... There is freedom. And so there's actually something complex going on there where first the Lord is the Spirit, and then the second time the Spirit is of the Lord, um, which we won't get into that in detail, but there's something, there's complexity there. But in verse 18, he once again says, The Lord who is the Spirit. At the end of verse 18, this, come, this transformation as we behold the glory of Christ comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So it is appropriate to say, The Holy Spirit is Yahweh. This week, you could say that about the Father and about the Son. Um, and uh, Paul, it's interesting, you have a couple places I have in here, Acts 28, 25, where Paul is quoting from Isaiah 6. And in the context of Isaiah 6, it's God speaking to, to Isaiah the prophet, giving him his commission as a prophet. Well, when Paul's quoting those words in Rome at the end of the very end of, of Acts, he says, the Holy Spirit says... And then he puts those words in the, whole, in the Holy Spirit's mouth, so to speak. And there's a couple of places where the Bible does this, where, 
what, what in the Old Testament context is said the Lord or God said, and then in New Testament authors will say the Holy Spirit said. Meaning you, you can't disentangle that. You, it, the Holy Spirit is God. He speaks as God. The third way to, the Bible shows his deity is that there are certain divine attributes, prerogatives, and works that are uh, belong to the Holy Spirit. That simply means that the Holy Spirit is and does things that only God is and does. Uh, things that uh, you would only say about God, you, you can say about the Holy Spirit. So just a few examples. In Psalm 139, verse 7, the psalmist says, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? He's talking to God and saying, your spirit and your presence are paralleled. And then he says that, he goes on and, and it says, your presence or your spirit is everywhere. Everywhere I could possibly go, you're there. If I go to the highest heights, the lowest depths, essentially the spirit is omnipresent, just like the presence of God is omnipresent, infinite. Isaiah 40 verses 13 to 14 speaks of uh, the, the wisdom of the Lord and his spirit. And so he ascribes infinite wisdom to the Holy Spirit. Um, Matthew twelve thirty two. This is the incident where Jesus is casting out demons and his opponents say, ah, oh, it's by the power of Satan that you're casting out demons. And what he says to them is, be careful, you are blaspheming the Holy Spirit. You can blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Well, you can't, you, it's not an unforgivable sin to blaspheme somebody who isn't God. That's, he's making a claim about the Holy Spirit's deity. Um, and then finally, the last one, just to point out, and again, there's others listed, but 1 Corinthians 3, 16 to 17, he says, Do you not know that you are God's temple? Okay, what's a temple for? Worship, and who lives in the temple? God, right? It's the, it's the place where God's glory dwells. Do you not know that you are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you, he says to the church. By virtue of the Holy Spirit dwelling in the people of God, we are the temple of God. So again, the, the Spirit's presence is God's presence. So, so that's, there's, that's another line of evidence. The things said of the Spirit you could only say of God. So that's, a, that's a, an outline of his deity at least. Any, any thoughts? Yeah, Gary. I just wanted to point out a little typo. Oh, yeah, what's up? Um, in uh, point two, called God, uh, Acts 28 should be verse 25 instead of 15. Oh, yeah, thank you. Oh, man. Yeah, it should be Acts 28, 25, not 15. Good, good catch there, Gary. There's an active listener. <laughs> Any thoughts of the Holy Spirit's deity? Yeah, Josh. Like going through some of these verses um, and certainly other places, mm -hmm. how um, is there a way sort of that we can distinguish whether it's specifically talking about like the Holy Spirit or like referring to God the Father? Mm -hmm. Like, is it can we refer to God the Father as Spirit and not specifically be talking about like the Holy Spirit? Mm -hmm. Like, is there sort of a sense in that God is? Well, yeah. It, can we say that God, not the Holy Spirit, is Spirit and that? answer is yes. Like when Jesus says in John 24, God is spirit. He's not talking about the person of the Holy Spirit. He means God, God's substance, God's essence is spirit. It's real, immaterial substance, which is not unique to the Holy Spirit. It's Father, Son, and, and the, the Holy Spirit. So being spirit is not, un, is not something, the unique province of the Holy Spirit among the, the, the other divine persons. But when you have language of my spirit or the Lord's spirit or the spirit of the Lord, 
that kind of of language is is very that's how you know you're talking about the the and in the Old Testament as it occurs it's not clear yet that that's what's going on right the, the clarity of the spirit as an individual person becomes you know it it, it, it increases through in, in the New Testament it becomes very clear you can look back and see in ways that maybe in the originally you couldn't have seen in the Old Testament but yeah whenever you see spirit of the Lord kind of language you know it's the Holy Spirit yeah good question um, but your question kind of anticipates the next point which is personhood we have to talk about him as a person um, now this is this is a really tricky thing what does it mean that what, what's the divine person you may have heard this terminology the Trinity there's one essence and three persons and we go okay well what's a person it's really hard to define one systematic theology suggests it's someone with a rational volitional rational means can you know think rationally volitional that has to do with the will nature a unique eye in relationship with other persons so we have thinking uh, willing and I, like an, uh, re- the ability to have relationships with others I think it's a pretty good start um, one thing we have to be very careful about, though, with thinking about the divine persons is that um, it's all too easy to, to hear person and think, oh, I'm a person. Um, I know experientially what it's like to be a person. Uh, and then we start thinking about our own experience as a person and going, oh, being a divine person must be kind of like that, too. Right? I have my own will. I have my own center of self-consciousness. And people have done this. The problem is uh, that's not a valid theological move. Because uh, there, is, there is true overlap or analogy between the creator and us as creatures. But it's, it's not direct. It's not, um, I should say, it's not complete. There's always partial, real, but incomplete overlap between our existence and God's existence, our creator. And so we get really in trouble when we start projecting our from below experience and observations about reality and going, oh, God must be like, and then projecting them upward. Uh, without being constrained by scripture and what it says and doesn't say about God. So one thing that has gotten people in, in a big trouble <laughs> in the Trinity is just thinking of the Trinity as a really close-knit group of three friends. Like, well, I'm a person, and my friend's a person, and my other friend's a person, and, you know, we get along. <laughs> like, we can do things together. Well, you get into hot water. You get, you get really create some distortions if you approach it that way. It's actually notoriously difficult to define exactly what a divine person is. The word was just coined because we needed a word for it. That, like, the word was coined after the concept because early in the early church, people wrestling with scripture had to go, well, there's a way that, the, that Father, Son, and Spirit are one, and then there's a different way that they're not one. So the way we're going to describe how they're not one is person. But just beware, it's not just like you and your two friends. <laughs> um, just a little, a little kind of... Uh, uh, helpful stuff for how we think about the Trinity. Um, this is important to realize, too, that the, the divine persons are not divisions in God. They're not parts of God. So you don't have the divine nature like a pie, and you go, okay, the Father is one-third of the pie, <laughs> and the Son is one-third, and so on. All that God is is all the persons. Each of the persons is all of God, and all of God is in each of the persons. That's crazy. I mean, that, I mean that's, <laughs> that's mysterious, right? But one author says, the whole God is in each person, and also each person is the whole God. Uh, because God is indivisible. If you started pulling God apart into parts, uh, you'd create all kinds of problems. It wouldn't be the same God. It wouldn't be the same God. 
So we can hear all that and go, okay, let's just throw up our hands and conclude that the Holy Spirit is, like, let's just give up on the idea of a person. Let's just say he's a, he's a force. <laughs> he's, uh, he's, a, he's an impersonal force. He's an extension of divine power. He's an it. People have suggested that. Uh, there are people who have said, okay, let's just propose that the Spirit is not a he at all. He's an it. Um, and that, too, is unbiblical. That's uh, erroneous. We can't conclude that. So we're going to look at how do we know the Holy Spirit is a he, is a person. And uh, that brings up what I would say are the two biggest arguments you have from Scripture, are affections and relationships. So does this so far make sense? We're going, I know this is kind of some dense stuff, but what does it mean for the Spirit to be a person? Well, let's look at things that you wouldn't say of a merely an impersonal force, just God doing something and saying, oh, the Spirit of God. Um, Isaiah 63.10 would someone uh, be willing to read Isaiah 63.10 Matt Boy thanks but they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit therefore he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them alright so, even in that short verse, what, what are some evidences that, that we have more than an impersonal power emanating from God here? Yeah. Okay, so he turned, right? So he's, an, he's like an active agent. It would be, uh, yeah, it would be kind of hard to imagine that being just a force or power from God. Yeah. Yeah, good. What else? He's grieved, yeah. You have uh, um, affection language. And God's affections, uh, you know, his grief is not like ours, we should say. It's not, not, it's again, it's analogous but not equal to ours. But at the same time, you would not say that about a non-person. Like he's, he's grieved. That, that's quoted in uh, Ephesians 4.30. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. So there's a, there's a person in relationship with you. That's kind of the, the idea. There. Yeah, Paul. Uh, I'm reading. I'm, I apologize. I'm reading out the in it, New American Standard. Uh-huh. Uh, it says he he grieved. Why would he say he grieved his Holy Spirit versus saying he, and grieved the Holy Spirit? Um, it's his. In I, I think that's probably in a lot of translation. His uh, the God. I think earlier verses said God gave His Holy Spirit to them, and they grieved His Holy Spirit. It's probably God's Holy Spirit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you have enmity. He became their enemy. Kind of what Jeff said. He turned. He turned and became their enemy. <laughs> it's like, okay, that's another relational category that you would only say of, of a he. So you have similar things in, in uh, I think, uh, was it Randy? You were talking about uh, John 14, 16, 17. He will uh, be, I, I'm going away, but he will be in you. He is with you. He'll be in you. Uh, throughout that upper room discourse, he talks about the spirit as another advocate like me. And he uses he language for him as an advocate, um, which, again, wouldn't work if you don't have a he. That's like Jesus is a he, like the son. So you have, you have clear he's a he, not an it. He's divine. Now, uh, let's talk about relations with the father and the son. So you, we just heard that all, all that is in God is in all three persons. You can't divide the divine nature up. They're not one-third God each. Then we might ask, well, what is it that distinguishes them? What, how is the Holy Spirit not the Son? If they share all the same attributes, they share the same divine nature, 
How is the Father not the Spirit? How is the Father not the Son? How are they different? Uh, or should we even distinguish them? So, so again, it's like almost everywhere you could turn, someone's tried it. <laughs> you know, like some people, some people suggest because they saw these unity passages and they said, well, maybe there is no real difference between them. Maybe it's one person acting in different ways. This is what's called, you may have heard of modalism. This was suggested. Maybe uh, people believe this. They aren't to be distinguished at all, ultimately. It's just more like different ways uh, the one person God is acting and being. He shows up one day as the Father, and he shows up over here as the Son, and over here as the Holy Spirit. Um, the church... Uh, Examine this in life scripture and rightly rejected it. For instance, you have Jesus' baptism creates big problems for that view. Because what happens at Jesus' baptism? The Son of God is, is in the waters of, of the Jordan. Yeah. Yeah. You have all three. You have the Son and the Spirit like a dove and the Father's voice from Him. You have all three showing up doing distinct things at the same time. Um. So what does distinguish them? And the answer is, um, we, we heard that language of procession, procession from the Father and the Son, what we could call eternal spiration. And spiration, wow, what does that mean? It means breathing out, okay? So the answer of what makes the Father and the Son and the Spirit distinct from each other is their eternal relations. So the Father, you may have heard of uh, what's called eternal generation with regard to the Son. What this means is the Father eternally generates the person of the Son. And this is called eternal generation. This doesn't mean, we should be clear, this doesn't mean the Father creates the Son. This doesn't mean that the Son's deity is any different from the Father's. It's the same deity, same nature. And it also doesn't mean that there ever was a time that the Son was not. It's eternal. At the same time, you have language, and we're not focusing on the Son right now in this lesson, but we just, to get our kind of terms straight, you have language like in Hebrews 1 where he's called the radiance of the glory of God. He is the shining forth derived from the Father. And yet that's eternally been the case. You have language of eternally begotten, uh, things like that. So the Son, what it means to be the Son is to be the Son of the Father, eternally begotten of the Father. And the, similar, the situation is similar with the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to be the Holy Spirit? To be eternally spirated or proceeding from the Father and the Son. Now, this image of being breathed out, um, well, you hear, you hear spirate even in, like, spirit. You see here, they're very similar, right? Spirit, uh, it comes from the same word as wind or breath, both in the Hebrew and Greek uh, language. And uh, you often have this imagery of the Holy Spirit being breathed out by God in the Bible. So, Job 33, 4, and we're going to talk about creation next week. This is what it's talking about. The Spirit of God has made me. And the breath of the Almighty gives me life. So there in that po poetic parallel, the Spirit of God and the breath of the Almighty are parallel. Like, it's, it's the same thing. The Spirit is the breath of God. And you see similar language of the Spirit proceeding from the Father. A very important verse on this is, is John 15, 26. Would someone be willing to read John 15, 26? <clears throat> this is, again, the upper room discourse we just heard about earlier in chapter 14 where he says it's better I'm going the, the helper or advocate will come to you yeah Wilson would you read 1526 but when the helper comes whom I will send to you from the father in the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father he will bear witness about so he describes this, the helper as whom the one that I will send to you from the father what's that a reference to you think 
What event is he referring to? I will send the helper to you from the Father. Yeah, Tom? Pentecost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The day of Pentecost. That's exactly it. Acts 2, when he sends the promise of the Father from heaven after his ascension. But he goes on and describes him as the spirit of truth who proceeds, present tense, from the Father. It's interesting. You might read this verse and say, well, he's just talking about his coming in, in history at, in the day of Pentecost. But he's described in the present tense as this is something about him. He proceeds. This is an ongoing reality about him. He proceeds from the Father. Um, and so that corresponds well with this idea, again, this imagery from the Old Testament of, of him being breathed out by God. He's, he's, he's always being breathed out by God, has been for eternity. Um, and we won't get into the weeds of the Father and the Son being the origin of the Holy Spirit. That's been actually a big debate in church history that divided Eastern and Western churches in the medieval era, and we won't get into those weeds. Uh, there is a good biblical case, I think, for it. it is the Father and the Son who, who generate the Holy Spirit. You have sometimes he's called the Spirit of the Son or Spirit of Christ in places like um, uh, Romans 8, 9. I have that as one of the texts in, um, in your handout. But uh, it's important that, to note that these relations, fatherhood, so the Father is the Father of the Son, sonship, the Son is the Son of the Father, and spiration, the Spirit is breathed out by the Father and the Son, are the only things that distinguish the persons. Everything else you could think of well, if you think, what else does the Spirit have that the others lack? Or what else does the Spirit lack that the others have? Everything else you could think of is part of the divine nature which they share. It's very important to say that. Because you start thinking of, well, maybe the, uh, you know, you start getting into trouble. Right? Maybe the Holy Spirit, maybe the Father has more authority. Uh, that's, that's, that's trouble. We'll talk about that in a moment. Um, it's these eternal relations that really define how they're distinct. So does that... Uh, but that, so that's their eternal relation. Now we're going to talk about what, how does that look in history when they're actually working in salvation. Uh, but any questions, again, these are deep waters, but any, any questions or thoughts about so far what we've covered? Yeah, my brain's smoking. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Yeah. If you see any smoke coming out of anyone's ears, I apologize. Yeah. These are, yeah, these are, these are probably about as dense as we're ever going to get in, in our theology, but uh, because they're such crucial central issues, it is worth going, going to... Yeah, Jeff? I'm kind of fair to say, essentially, their attributes are all the same, yeah. yet their work and their, like, the way that they, the, the different persons of the, the Trinity commune with us is expressed kind of uniquely in some Yeah, way. yeah. You're, you're anticipating where we're going very well. Though their, their, their works and relations are expressed differently, you said the, the, the attributes are the same. Yes, that's a good way of putting where we're going to go because, yes, there, there, there's, there's oneness, in them, but there's some diversity in, in how they carry out the divine works and commune with us. Absolutely. Yes, yeah, that's a good way of putting it. So let's talk about, okay, if the, the Son is always uh, uh, generated by the Father, the Spirit is always being breathed out by the Father and the Son. What does that mean for the plan of redemption, right? The story of what God has done in history. And so here's just one way to think about God and his works in history. What he's doing in the world, in the gospel, and sending Jesus and sending the Spirit, reveals him truly but not fully. Okay? God is incomprehensible. There's nothing, there, we couldn't fully understand him. He can't fully reveal himself to us in history, in his works. But they do truly reveal who he is. And so um, what we would say about this, the, the Son and the Spirit, their manner of coming into the world, reflect things about, true things about the eternal inner life of God. 
but aren't identical to them. So it's a, it's a mistake to, to look at things going on in history, like Jesus' incarnation, and just project everything straight back into eternity and saying, oh, that must be how it's always been between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So you have language, especially in the Gospel of John, of Jesus submitting, expressing his submission to the Father. I always do what the Father tells me to do, and he, he's, he's glad to obey, submit to the Father. Some have proposed, oh, this must be because there are eternal relationships of headship and submission that stretch into eternity. It's part of the inner life of God, independent of what he's doing in history with his creation. That the, the Son eternally submits to the Father, and the Spirit is under both the Father and the Son. But this is, I, I would argue, I think it's important to say, this is an error. We can't do this. You can't just project what he's doing in history and say, that's exactly the case in the eternal inner life of God. Because this is proposing a new thing that differentiates the persons, which is authority. But if, isn't sovereign authority something that belongs to God as God? Isn't, isn't authority and sovereignty part of the divine nature? It's a divine attribute. So to start divvying that up and saying, well, maybe one of the persons has more of it than the others creates problems. Um, much better to say that what they're doing in, in the son becoming a man and humbling himself by becoming a man, taking on flesh and submitting to the father, there is a reflection of his origin, his eternal origin from the father, but it's not like he always is submitted to the father. So one theologian puts it like this, that the son is under the father in his incarnate lowliness as a man, is compatible with his being from the Father eternally in the unity of the indivisible Trinity. So to make it, to put it more simply, the incarnate Son submits to the Father in time because he comes from the Father in eternity. Does that make sense? He submits to the Father in time in his, in his incarnate state because he comes from the Father in eternity. But there's no division of authority in the inner life of, of the Trinity. Same with the Spirit. He comes from the Father and the Son but he's not lesser in authority than the Father and the Son. He's, he's the one will and one in authority within the Trinity. John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he gave his mm -hmm. Son. They had a, uni a unity yeah. of purpose before, before that time when Jesus, it was time for Jesus to go. Yeah. Yeah, John 3.16, yeah, that, that's a good question. I think maybe God there, it's tricky because sometimes God is used of the Father. It, just the word God is used, but in the context, it, it seems the Father. I think it might be he's speaking of the Father in that context. But you do have language, like in Hebrews, there's this kind of intra, there's this like Trinitarian dialogue about the Son's coming. And you do see this sort of shared, uh, this shared plan, so to speak. Um, yeah, yeah, so... I would say that might be. I would say, yeah, John 3 might not be a, a, a place that. There's just very little said to us about before the plan of salvation, right? Well, pretty much the whole Bible is talking about the plan of salvation, so we have very little view into what was happening before. Yeah. Can you Jeff? touch on well, how this all connects to, like, you're talking like the divine attributes of like, immutability? Yeah. I'm struggling to grasp Christ, the, the person, of yeah. God, having a different relationship yeah, with yeah. God. Yeah, yeah. So immutability, yeah, is this an, is, what is, how does that have to do with immutability that the son suddenly there's a new relationship? And I would say, great question. The son is the divine nature and a human nature. So the, the person of the son undergoes a change. 
by being united to a human nature. But not the, the, the deity of the son, which is, that's what's immutable. No change there. So his God, his divine nature, part of it, what it means to be God is you can't change. So his divine nature doesn't change, but by virtue of as a person being united to a human nature, there is, some, there is change in that sense. Yeah, talking about Christ and his two natures, is, it, it, it's, it's tricky because you do run into these things. You have to think through as you read the Gospels. We're, we're dealing with a divine human person. Yeah. Yeah, Rhonda. Is it correct that we really have the Father image in the New Testament? Because in the Old Testament, you see Yahweh. Mm-hmm. God reveals himself yeah. really as Yahweh, except there are a lot of places where, like, an angel of the Lord appears, yeah. and we kind of assume that that's Christ. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, so, yeah, good question. What about the Old Testament? Is this idea of God's a father new to the New Testament? There are, I would say, there are hints and shadows of the triunity of God in the Old that you can look back. Greg's talked about this a couple weeks ago. You can look back. Given what we know, full of clarity in the New, you can go, oh, yeah, there's, there actually is quite a few little, but in the, in the as given originally, you, you wouldn't have seen those things as clearly. There are, there is, there are texts that, that use a fatherhood language for God in the Old Testament, but the idea that there's a distinct person within God, you know, within what it, who God is, there's a father and sonship and a Holy Spirit. That is something that doesn't get spelled out until the new. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. Great. Great question. Let's talk about the, the divine works. Uh, we've seen that the Holy Spirit is a divine person. He's breathed out by the Father and the Son. Now, what, what about his works? So, um, could someone read 1 Corinthians 12? This is something, some place to camp out. We're going to actually spend a little bit of time here. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4 to 7, and then verse 11. This is Paul's spiritual gifts discussion with the Corinthians. They're abusing spiritual gifts. So he wants to set them straight, give them a good theology, first of all, of what spiritual gifts are. So would someone be willing to read that? 1 Corinthians 12, 4 to 7, and verse 11. Now there are varieties of gifts with the same spirit. And there are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Verse 11. Mm -hmm. But one of the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually, just as he wills. Thank you. So, according to this text, who do spiritual gifts come from? The Holy Spirit? Yeah, where do we see that? Verse 4? Yep, the whole, yep. Do you see that anywhere else in the passage? That the spiritual gifts come from the Holy Spirit. 11. They are all empowered by the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as He wills. It's interesting, the Holy Spirit is said to be He wills. Okay. Any, is there any more answer we could give? Who gives spiritual gifts? Part of this is tricky because you have to understand how Paul uses some of these terms. Um, we just saw earlier that Paul, in one place, says the Spirit is the Lord. Usually, if he, without any other contextual evidence, when he says the Lord, Paul means Christ. Unless context forces you to take it otherwise. When he says the Lord, he means Jesus. And when he says God, unless context forces you to conclude otherwise, he means the Father. So sometimes you'll get, 
Well, I think we got this in 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The, the, the love of God, the, the fel- I think he said the, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. But you have there, God there is the Father. So if you look at verses 4 to 6 that way, who do spiritual gifts come from? Do you see there's a Trinitarian structure there? And they're basically parallel ways of saying the same gift service activities are, they're all parallel. They're, they're, he's using them the same way. So what he's saying, he's making this wonderful Trinitarian statement. Spiritual gifts come from the Spirit. Spiritual gifts come from the Lord Jesus. Spiritual gifts come from God the Father. But, um, so it's fascinating how Paul lines up the divine persons with this triadic statement, like I talked about earlier. Spiritual gifts come from the triune God. It's the whole, it's a whole God activity to give spiritual gifts. But then just a few lines down, as Gary pointed out, verse 11, he singles one person out, doesn't he? He singles out the Holy Spirit in a really emphatic way. These are empowered by the same Spirit. He distributes them as he wills. So there's a a theological adage that's become famous about how the Trinity is always working as one in all God does, and it's there in your handout. The external works of the trinity are indivisible and external just means what he's doing out outward into his creation not like his own inner life the external works of the trinity are indivisible this means that the father is never doing something all by himself the son is never doing something all by himself neither is the spirit uh they don't have their own side projects (laughs) you know they don't have side hustles with uh what you know kind of the, the the divine works we might think, here's something that we might be present. The Father is the creator. Then he uh, handed over the keys to his son after, you know, he, he created this wonderful machine and then uh, a wrench went into the works and gummed it all up. And then so he said, here's son, I hand this over, you redeem it. And the son redeemed it. And then the son uh, goes up in the ascension after his resurrection says, all right, spirit, I'm tagging you in. You finish, you clean up and finish the job. It doesn't work that way. It's not like the persons are each doing their own isolated thing. Um, as we'll see next week, the Spirit was involved in the creation. And the Son is actively involved in the church, its growth and spread and its spiritual vitality. So you can't dis, uh, disentangle the divine persons from any of the divine works. So the whole Trinity is working all the time, whatever God is doing. This is why you have, like in this passage, spiritual gifts come from the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. But this leads to Kind of the next, we have to say immediately after that, but roles are appropriated to individual persons. Meaning roles are assigned or, or kind of pinned to individual persons within those works. As soon as we say the works of God are undivided, we have to then put a comma and say, there's one sense in which each person has a distinct role or mode of action within each work. And I think 1 Corinthians 12 is a beautiful way to see this, that you can, kind of, you can kind of look at it through two different focal, like you can kind of look at it two different lenses. You can say the triune God is giving spiritual gifts. And then you can kind of shift your focus and say, but in another sense, we could zero in and say the Holy Spirit is giving spiritual gifts. As he wills. <laughs> I think it's so interesting he says that. We've just, he just uh, broadened out to the alternative, but then he focuses in and says as the Spirit wills, which of course is the divine will. It's, it's the same will as the Father and the Son. Uh, we could say the spirit is most directly responsible for this divine action of giving the spiritual gifts. What's a divine action for which the son is most directly responsible? Redemption. Yeah. Or even more, is there anything more specific? What are you saying, Rhonda? Atonement. Justification. Incarnation. I mean, he was the person who became incarnate, right? Like, 
But again, we wouldn't say he's the only person involved in that work. We would say it, there's a special way in which it's his work. Right? You kind of, so what we have to do is we have to be able to flip back and forth between saying, this is something the whole triune God is doing. This is something that one person is doing in a, in a special way. So the, the divine persons are unified in works, but they're distinct in, in their roles within those works. Um, so uh, we won't have time to look there, but uh, I have 1 Corinthians. I'm sorry, I have John. We've talked about this a few times. Already. John 14, 16 to 23, where indwelling, Jesus says, the Holy Spirit, I'm going up. He will be in you. And then a few verses later, he says, the Father and I are going to, in, to, to live in you. So he can say the Spirit is the indweller, and then a few verses later he'll say in verses 20 and 23, we will indwell you by virtue of the Spirit indwelling you. That's how it works. So in one sense, the Spirit is the indweller, in another sense, because he's in perfect union with the triune God, God is indwelling Father, Son, and Spirit. Um, is this mysterious? <laughs> is this hard to wrap our minds around? Oh, yeah. You know, <laughs> this is good when it comes to... These things, these deep things of God, they're beyond us to understand. We, we can't wrap our heads around both at the same time. We can't wrap our heads around either one of those sides. And this is a good place to bring up another 4th century church father, Gregory of Nazianzus. And, and he says, No sooner do I conceive of the one than I am illumined by the splendor of the three. No sooner do I distinguish them than I am carried back to the one. And he just, uh, it's just so profound to think about the Holy Spirit. I uh, think about the Trinity and going, you start focusing in on the threeness, and you go, but, but, but what about, there's oneness over here. And you start focusing in on the oneness, and you go, but I, got, I can't forget the threeness. And that's just the mystery of, of God. And it's, embrace it. <laughs> embrace it. Uh, don't domesticate how incomprehensible and how beautiful God is in his works. There's a harmony there that the Father, Son, and Spirit are doing everything together, but you can still distinctly see and enjoy each, each person. So, we're in a healthy place if we're kind of finding ourselves having to sort of oscillate our, our attention back and forth, like, you know, like your oscillating fan that's got to go like, okay, back and forth between the oneness and threeness of God. Um, so any, uh, any questions? <laughs> I must uh, hesitate to even ask, but anything that I could clarify or any or comments or things that, yeah. Run it. I was just thinking about um, kind of the authority part. I was like in Revelation, a lot of times it talks about Jesus going to return and uh-huh. be seated on the throne yeah. to the Father. So is there an eternal throne even from the beginning of time? Mm-hmm. You don't hear the you don't you don't hear anything, or maybe I'm just missing it, that the Holy Spirit also mm. is there because Jesus goes back to take his place right. at the right hand of the Father, right. seated on the throne. Mm-hmm. Where's the spirit in the kind of revelation picture of the Father? He who sits on the throne into the Lamb. Um, you know, I think we looked about at this a while back. Um, I think there's there's a place in Revelation 22 where there's him who sits on the throne in the Lamb, and then there's a river of life flowing from from between the throne. I think from before the throne. And if you are keyed into terminology from the prophets and from the Gospel of John, uh, where he speaks about the Holy Spirit, saying streams of water will flow from his heart. Good evidence to take that as the Spirit in that imagery of revelation. So he, we talked last week, he's elusive. He doesn't show up in the same way, right? As, as you, you have these concrete pictures, of course, it's symbolic, a lamb, right? Jesus isn't going to look like a lamb, but um, yeah, it's like he's there, but it doesn't, it's not quite the same obviousness. Yeah. Yeah. 
So let's look at what, okay, given that roles are appropriate to the persons, what about the Holy Spirit? Let's get down to like, why are we doing this? What does the Holy Spirit do, right? Uh, what roles are appropriate to him in the divine works? And there's, there's a lot of different categories we could come up with as we look at the biblical data, and, and there's different ways we could organize them, like which, which of these are sort of subsets of others. It's kind of fun to think about. Uh, we could come up with basically a list that would be we see him perfecting, we see him giving life, we see him revealing, we see him filling with the presence of God. And I think probably it's appropriate, you could argue, I'm not the only one, <laughs> uh, to make this idea of perfecting and life-giving sort of the banner over all of it. Perfecting and life-giving. And everything else he does sort of is a subset of that, is a way of perfecting and life-giving. Um, one, one author says that in all the divine works, the Father originates, the Son mediates, and the Holy Spirit is the one who brings every work to completion. He's the, the completer, perfecter. So um, we're going to look at, first of all, his perfecting or life-giving. Didn't we hear, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life? Now, we just saw how the Holy Spirit, the Lord, comes out of 2 Corinthians 3. Is the Holy Spirit a giver of life? Is that a biblical statement? Yes. It comes directly out of, the Holy, uh, out of Scripture as well. In uh, John 6.63, um, where Jesus is talking, he says offensive things that drive people away about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And he says, um, he's talking about who's going to basically accept these words of mine. And he says this, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. It is the Spirit who gives life. Now, that's a summary of, this isn't the only verse where you can see that, but it's, it's, it says it most plainly. It is the Spirit who gives life. And um, this idea of perfecting and life-giving is kind of the same, the same idea as, as Puritan John Owen, who probably has written more about the Holy Spirit than anyone else in church history, wrote in a, in a modern kind of print edition. It would be thousands of pages about the Holy Spirit. He writes this, in every great work of God, the concluding, completing, perfecting acts are, are ascribed unto the Holy Ghost. The concluding, completing, perfecting of everything that God does is said to be of the Holy Spirit. And um, that, that pertains to everything God does. So next week, we're going to look at how that looks in the original creation, God's creation and ongoing providential care of the world. This might be a category that we don't think about. The Holy Spirit as the creator, as, some, as involved in the work of creation. But he's the perfecter and life giver in God's creative work. And of course, this has to do with, the, with God's work of redemption. Um, he's the one. So Christ is the kind of the primary actor of this redemptive work in the gospel. He's the one incarnated. He's the one who lives a perfect life and goes to the cross, payment of our sins. He's the one raised from the dead. But the spirit is the one who makes these things fruitful. I mean, he's with Jesus in his ministry. He prepares a body for him. Um, and then you see, even in Jesus' ascension, well, who, who makes this work that Christ did actually effective in people's lives? Who brings people to believe and brings to, to spiritual life to, to be united to Christ and all he's done? That's the Holy Spirit. He's the, Christ is, so, so to speak, he's bought the goods and the Spirit is now given to make us alive with these things Christ has done to complete them. Uh, Joel 2.28 is a prophecy where um, God says that uh, the Spirit will be poured out in the last days. And in, in Acts 2 at Pentecost, Peter says, yep, it's happening. It's Joel 2.28. The Spirit is being poured out in these last days. 
Well, that's, again, this idea of perfecting. It's sort of the, the, the late stage in God's redemptive plan is the stage of when the Holy Spirit is poured out. Um, so, uh, yeah, any, any questions about that idea of perfecting and giving life is sort of just the thumbnail. And, and we're giving this in kind of summary form because the rest of the class is going to be teasing out different ways of the Spirit doing these things. So we're going to look at, again, creation, revelation, um, conversion, all these things. This is all going to be basically different ways the Spirit perfects and gives life. Yeah, Paul. Were you going to go over Romans eight eleven? I noticed you had. Were you going to talk about Romans eight eleven or, or not? Um, I don't remember if I was, but because we, it's next door. It's next yeah, door. I have some listed there for your reference, but okay. we could look at it. Yeah, uh, I'm going to. It says Romans eight eleven. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. My question yeah. is: the Spirit of Him, yep, Holy Spirit. Who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ still talking about the Holy Spirit. No, that's God, right? That's the Father. Yeah, the Spirit of, and then who's the Him? It, it, Romans eleven is an amazing verse. Just camp out, spend ten minutes looking at it. And through his, at the end, says through his Spirit, his Spirit would that be God the Father? Yeah. So if the Spirit of God the Father who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, God the Father who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through. God's spirit who dwells in you. That's another inseparable operation. That's the fancy term for what we just learned about. There's a, is the, who's involved in giving life to Christians and raising Christ from the dead? You can find verses that ascribe Jesus' resurrection to every divine person. This is, here it's the father who raised the son. Jesus says, I take my life up again. You know, I lay it down. So I'll pick it up again. And then um, it's through the spirit that the father raises the son. So you have the whole Trinity's working in the resurrection of Christ, and that, that same triune work will happen, or that same life-giving work will happen in you, Christian, in your life, by means of primarily which person? Which more, most directly, which divine person is involved in that life-giving work in us? The Holy Spirit. Yeah, that's a really, yeah, it's a good verse. <laughs> they're, all, they're all good verses, but that's a really helpful verse for just this kind of things we're looking at. So when the, the God is giving his Holy Spirit, that's where life is happening, both original physical life, but also more profoundly spiritual re-creation. Re, uh, now, we'll look at a couple more things that I think fit under perfecting life-giving, and these would be revealing and indwelling. So um, we have revealing. We're going to talk next uh, two weeks about the Holy Spirit and revelation, but the creed again says he spoke through the prophets about the Holy Spirit. He spoke through the prophets. We saw again... Acts, uh, Acts 28.25, Paul takes something out of the Old Testament so that God said, and he says, the Holy Spirit said this. You, you find this in a few places in the New Testament. Um, the Holy Spirit is uh, the divine person that's most directly credited with revelation, giving the words of God. Now, help us think together. How is it that the Spirit's role in revealing Scripture is a perfecting or life-giving function? So you can take either one of those. They're, they're, they're very related, but... How is giving scripture a perfecting or life-giving function? Yeah, Randy. I paraphrase, he reveals the truth of God's word. Yeah, he's revealing the truth of God's word. So he's sort of the most direct uh, kind of, if, if scripture is, the, is really the triune God doing something, communicating with us, the spirit is the one who kind of finally gets the words to us. So there's a perfecting role there. Writers of Scripture were inspired by mm-hmm. God, and that's really the Holy Spirit. Yeah, 
And that's, I have a reference there to 2 Peter 1.21, which I'm sure we'll look at in a couple weeks. But they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the words of God. Yeah, Annalie? Yeah. And there's no Holy Spirit mentioned there in 2 Timothy 3.16, but come on, breathed out by God, right? In, in, in concert with other texts like 2 Peter 1.21, that the Spirit carried these writers along. You say, oh, the Holy Spirit's involved here in most directly in giving the words, yeah. And uh, Matt? It's convicting you to obey the word. So we're going to talk about, yeah, convicting. We're going to talk about what the Spirit is doing on the receiving end of God's word, which is vitally important as well. So not just the giving of God's word, but the, the making, bringing them alive, right? The, the words are not a dead letter. They, they will live. They're, it's the living and active word of God uh, because of the Holy Spirit and how the Spirit and Word are wedded. Yeah, uh, Wilson. Paul tells the Galatians about being perfected by the Spirit. Oh, yeah. Hey, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or, the, or by faith? Yeah. Except the same way you're being perfected by the Spirit. Yeah. By works of the law. Right, good. Oh, that's great. That's, uh, is that Galatians 3? Yeah, good. So Paul says to the Galatians they're perfected. They, they were begun by the Spirit, and they're going to be perfected by the Spirit, yeah. The, the words of God are his means of life-giving, aren't they? Maybe you say, how does God give life? It, through his word or his spirit? <laughs> I hope you can't answer that question, right? Like, yes, because the spirit is the divine person who's revealing. Yeah. The was the word, mm-hmm. and then the word was with God, and the word was God, mm-hmm. and then the word became flesh, mm-hmm. which is Jesus. Yeah. Also the word in the written form, or even in spoken form, through in the Old Testament, God speaking to yeah yeah so there's a real yeah i mean it's other important good conversation to have but there's a sense in which the scripture is uh the, the word kind of most profoundly is the person of the son of whom the scripture is 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 an expression as well yeah so the son is intimately involved in revelation in that sense of course He's the substance of revelation, but the Spirit is the deliverer of revelation. I'd say. Uh, finally, and then we have indwelling. So um, indwelling is a perfecting work as well. You have like Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In Christ you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So the Spirit's indwelling. Christ purchased us. He did the work in the gospel to redeem us. And what is this? The giving of the Spirit seals us. Boom. God's saying, you're mine. Puts that stamp, that seal. You're mine until redemption is complete. The Spirit is perfecting, right? He's, he's bringing to completion the work that God has done in Christ. Um, so we'll get more into indwell- both of this, revelation and indwelling in future lessons. I want to spend the last few minutes talking about kind of application and conclusion. So... Uh, we've seen the Holy Spirit as the divine person whose roles in the divine works revolve around perfecting and completing and breathing life into what God's doing. Um, what, how do we experience the Holy Spirit then? Let's think about how do we experience the Holy Spirit distinctly given these things? What, how can we enjoy the Holy Spirit distinctly given who he is and how, what, what roles in the divine works he's doing? And you might recall that list of passages we looked at last week, that long list of all these things that you're enjoying God because you have the Holy Spirit and all these things he does. The comforter. The comforter, so receiving his comfort. Uh, and, and especially, like, I'll even go back to that Ephesians 1, that to have the Holy Spirit in you is to be 
His very presence is the assurance of God, the stamp. I've redeemed you in Christ. I'm going to finish my redeeming work in you. Uh, so that's comfort, right? And knowing God's, God's with us and in us. Yeah, Matt? Uh, receiving his word on, from the pulpit. Right? Yeah, it, receiving his word. So we are, re- we are relating to the Holy Spirit when we receive scripture. How we receive scripture, whether preached or other ways we receive it, is a way of relating to the Holy Spirit, either in hardness or in a softness and a humility and a gratitude. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Uh, inspiration Brady. or revelation? Okay. Inspiration, revelation of um, direction for your life. Okay. So the, the, there, there are ways the Holy Spirit guides. Yeah. I want to talk about that. Yeah. There's ways the Holy Spirit is guiding that He's bringing the truth of God to bear in our lives. He's perfecting, right? He's kind of bringing it home to us. And there's going to be a guidance aspect there. So being sensitive to how He's leading and guiding. Yeah, absolutely. Just, oh, yeah. Garrett. I don't know, maybe this has been expressed, but uh, reading, whenever I read the Bible, mm-hmm. it, it does inspire me to read those words. Mm-hmm. When I don't read it, you know, like there'll be a lot of dry periods perhaps in my yeah. life, then I seem to lose that inspiration. Yeah. Constant reading yeah. of the word keeps you inspired. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, like there's a circular effect where when we're turning ourselves away from the Spirit, so to speak, in, in speaking in Scripture, there could be kind of a hardening or a kind of a quenching of, of His work, but there can be a warming and a more of an, a kindling of desire when we are hearing His words in the Scripture, yeah, devoting ourselves. Just really in any enjoyment of the gospel, any enjoyment of our fellowship with God, just thinking like it is the Spirit who's in me making this real and live in me. But we also enjoy the Spirit... Tr- Trinitarianly, that's a made-up word, sorry, but in a Trinitarian way. How is it that we, in all our enjoyment of the Spirit, how do we not just untether him, chop him off from the Trinity, and turn it into only me and the Holy Spirit? How do we enjoy him as a, tri- as a, a divine person in the Trinity? Recognizing the work that he does, which is really to bring us into fellowship with the Father and the Son. So the Spirit's, the Spirit's uh, fellowship turns us toward the grace of Christ, back into 2 Corinthians 13, 14, which really brings us back to the throne of the Father to see his love that originated the whole. So there's a sense in which enjoying the Spirit is being brought to commune more closely with the Father through the Son. Yeah. And this is just a question. Yeah, Rhonda. Yeah. I was going to say, uh, last week, I wasn't here, but I was watching virtually. Mm-hmm. And, um, Michelle made a comment about how difficult to pray to yeah. the Holy Spirit. And so I was really com- contemplating that. I, I used the song, the first song Wilson had, which was um, I can't think of the title of it now, but it, there was a, a, a verse for each one. Was it Come Thou Almighty King? Yes. Yes, yes. So That's a, yeah. I I have a copy of that, and, I, and I've been trying to use it as a help for praying for yeah. that day, but I've just been thinking how how do I normally pray? And I often just say, Lord. Yeah. It's kind of a non-distinct, but I've been thinking about, you know, God, thank you for being my father and how yeah. you uh, made me your own. And yeah. Lord, thank you. Jesus, thank you for saving me. And, mm-hmm. you know, and the Holy Spirit, thank you for for teaching me and calling me. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm just trying to, yeah. to con- contemplate each of those roles. Yes. You said last week it's so hard to get our heads around yeah. it's so abstract in yeah. Yeah. and yet I've been trying to pray 
with that's a great example different distinctions like the three persons yeah and that helps me get a, a better sense of the holy spirit's yeah absolutely that brings us back to basel right the whole thing of we pray to the father through the son and the spirit yes but we also can pray to them each we can give glory to them each in a parallel way for their distinct roles it's yes and right that's the mystery of the trinity um so we just for the sake of time i'll go ahead and close this in prayer but if other questions were generated so these matters how to enjoy the spirit you know in it distinctly but in the context of the trinity that's something to just be wrestling with this whole series uh, the, the point of this whole is that we commune with god through his spirit so um that's these questions are not over in in our minds or our class but let's go ahead and close in prayer Oh, Holy Spirit, we praise you as the one who's perfected and completed and continues to complete the works that Christ has done and the Father has uh, originated. These mysteries are beyond us, but they're beautiful, and they uh, stir up worship and adoration in our hearts. And we pray that that would continue and that you'd uh, sweeten our lives with, with a zeal for you and for good works in faith that you'd be producing in our lives. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.